Well, if you will remain standing, we've come to two of the more famous miracles that Jesus performed, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And in both of these miracles, we're gonna see once again that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Son of God. And that's what these miracles are intended for us to see. And there's some other things as well. So let's turn there or look on the screens. John chapter six, I'll be reading verses one to 21 today. Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were gonna come and make him king by force, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord for us today. You may sit down. And let us pray together as we seek to understand and apply it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the abundance of your word and the feast that it is to us. Help us to see you more clearly and to know your son Jesus through these stories today. Would you open up our minds to understand and apply your text by the power of your Holy Spirit? We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Well, how do you react when your faith in Jesus 
is tested. You know, those times when you're faced with a very challenging situation, when you're in a situation you don't know what to do or where to go. It's at those times that what we truly believe catapults to the surface. This can happen on the macro societal level or on the micro individual level. So on the macro level, over the past, I'd say, 10 to 20 years, the culture has shifted in the way that they think about those who follow Jesus. About 20 years ago, if you were a Christian in this society, that was seen as an asset. You were seen as beneficial to society. That has shifted quite a bit till today, where now in some circles, if you are to stand up for Jesus in your workplace, you might be not being able to get a promotion or be marginalized. Or if you stand up for Jesus in your uh, friend group or within family, you'll be seen potentially as someone who's very judgmental or narrow-minded or even bigoted. That's on the macro level. But on the micro-individual level, our faith can be tested as well. And trials are what often tests our faith. They have a unique ability to bring what's inside our hearts to the surface. I can think that I'm a pretty patient guy on most days. That is until our two-year-old doesn't sleep for about a week. Then all of a sudden, whether it's a big trial or a small trial, you know, there my, my, tri- my faith is tested. Trials test our faith. And in today's passage, we're going to witness the faith of Jesus' disciples being tested. And as this is happening, the character and beauty of our Lord Jesus will be on full display. And through these two stories, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water, I believe the Lord wants us to build our faith in him so that when we do face these type of trials, these type of difficulties, we will be ready. Well, the first four verses of chapter six, they set the scene for today's stories. If you haven't been with us, I'll catch you up a bit. Jesus has been down in Jerusalem, and he has left Jerusalem. He's also left that debate with the religious leaders. Now he's up north in Galilee. And the time is around the time of Passover. Remember the last time the Passover came, Jesus cleared the temple down in Jerusalem. Now he's up north in Galilee. And from the other gospel writers, we learn that Jesus was looking for a little rest and retreat with his disciples. He was likely mourning the death of John the Baptist. And he also wanted to hear about his disciples' recent ministry journeys, what had happened and he, they were going to go and debrief this. And so they head, it says in the text, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That's the eastern side. But the crowds would not let Jesus alone. They wouldn't give him that kind of rest and relaxation that he desired because Jesus, his fame was spreading. It was spreading like wildfire. It says in verse 4, it's because He was healing the sick. These people wanted to see Jesus, and they wanted to be healed. And so through these two stories, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, this main theme stands out for us. This is a good time to write something down if you're taking notes. And kids, if you're drawing pictures, 
You could, you could be drawing a picture of Jesus walking on water. You could be drawing a picture of a lot of loaves of uh, bread and a lot of fish. Whatever you want to do, I'd love to see those pictures. But this is the main theme out of these two stories. When you're with Jesus, no obstacle is too great for him to abundantly provide. When you're with Jesus, no obstacle is too great for him to abundantly provide. And as we go through these two stories in the text, we will observe three truths about Jesus that we as his followers must remember if we want to walk faithfully with him and if we want to be able to stand in our own times of trial. And the first truth is found in verses five to nine, and it is this, that Jesus will test our faith. You know, when we're faced with any kind of difficult situation in life, we have a few options. The first option is just to freak out. (laughs) Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And you just kind of freak out. The second option is to kind of think of some ways that you can fix that problem or that situation. Use your own mind and your own control to fix it. And the third solution is we can trust in Jesus. Now, those aren't all mutually exclusive, I get that, but those are the options before us. And starting in verse five, we can observe Jesus testing Philip's faith in this impossible situation. And as we go through the story, we'll observe which option he chooses, where he goes. Well, verse five, if, if you have your Bibles there, you can hear it as I read it out, says this. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Well, if there was ever an impossible situation, this was it. We learn a few verses later in verse 10 that there were 5,000 men coming towards them. Matthew tells us that it didn't include women and children. So that some scholars have estimated that the crowd coming towards Jesus could have been as large as 20,000 people. To put that in perspective for us, if you've ever been to a Bulls game or a Blackhawks game, been to the United Center for a concert, that holds about just over 20,000 people. So it's like the whole United Center, kind of just walking towards Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus asked Philip, who's from this area, he's from Bethsaida, where this took place. He's like, well, well, Philip, you're from this area. Where where should we buy food for all of these people? Talk about an impossible situation. You know, it's such an advantage to read a story from our vantage point here, where we get the narrator's comments. Philip didn't have the benefit of the narrator's comments here, but we we have them, so we can read in verse 6, where John inserts the following. He, speaking of Jesus, said this to him, Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. He said this to him to test him for he himself knew what he would do. You see, Jesus is testing Philip's faith. Only the fact is, Philip doesn't know his faith is being tested. And often today, our faith is also being tested when we're faced with impossible situations. We just don't always recognize it as such. But Jesus already knows what he's gonna do. He already knows he's going to feed the 5,000 by himself, but he says this to Philip because he wants to know when in 
when presented with this impossible situation, which direction is Philip going to go? Is he going to trust in his own ingenuity and his own trying to figure this out? Or is he going to trust in Jesus? Well, we see the answer in verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Like many of us, Philip is a realist. He does some quick math. He looks at the probably 20,000 people coming, and he says not even 200 days wage, that's what a denarius was, a day's wage, not even eight months of wages would be able to pay for these people just to have little scraps, not even a full meal. To put some perspective in today's currency, that would be like saying, Jesus, this is going to cost 40 grand to feed all these people, and they're still going to be hungry. Translation, I don't think this is possible, Jesus. Well, then Andrew, who's also from that region, he's from Bethsaida, he tries to save Philip a bit, even though he too is very skeptical. Listen to verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Likely, this was a boy who had brought dinner for himself. I find it fascinating that out of the 20,000 people, this is the only one we know who's kind of planned ahead for dinner, but that's another story for another time. Now, lest we think this was a lot of food, it wasn't. These five loaves of bread weren't what you buy at the store today. They weren't these like large loaves of bread. These uh, loaves of bread were like five barley cakes. They were little cakes, not very big at all. And and lest you think the fish was like some prize-winning catch, you know, from the lake, it wasn't. These were pickled fish, little fish that were intended to go with these five barley cakes. This was a small little meal for a boy. It couldn't even feed a small family, much less a large crowd of 20,000 people. So it still seems like an impossible situation. But Jesus is not limited by impossible circumstances. Not in the least. We've learned that over the course of John's gospel. Many of us know that by experience in our life. Nothing is impossible for Jesus. And the question this morning that I want to ask you is, do you believe like that is true? Do you live your life as if nothing is impossible for Jesus? I doubt any of us are being asked right now to feed 2,000 people with no resources. If I was asked to feed all of you, it would be very stressful at this moment. But perhaps Jesus is testing your faith in another way right now. Perhaps he is leading you to do something that is out of your control. It seems too hard for you. You don't seem to have the resources to accomplish this. Or perhaps it's something else. Often today, Jesus uses trials to test our faith. We learn that in James 1, that trials of various kinds test our faith. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 4. He says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange when you are encountering trials. God uses these to test 
our faith. Trials are normal in a fallen world, but God uses these to test our faith. So what I want to do is just do a little thought experiment with us right now. I want you to think about the biggest trial that you are facing right now. The, big, the most challenging relational situation, the most difficult physical issue, whatever the biggest trial is in your life, think of that right now. So if you, if you get that in your minds, I'll give you two more seconds. You got that in your minds. When you think of that trial, whatever it is, do you see that as a test of faith? Or do you see that trial as a hindrance to what you want to do in your life, what even God wants to do in your life, something that you need to get past? Because how you answer that question will kind of give you an indicator of how are you living by faith right now? If you are just thinking of every single trial and these big trials as something that is keeping you from the main thing, you've got it wrong. God is always working in these difficult things in our lives. And he has a plan much bigger than we could ever imagine. You may not understand what he's doing, but he has all of eternity in mind for you. And friends, whatever trial it is, these words from the text are true for us. For he knew what he was going to do. Friends, he knows what he's going to do in your life. You may not know, but he knows. For us at Hope Fellowship, he knows what he's going to do in the life of this church. We may have a, an indication, but we don't know fully what he's doing. Right now, he's testing our faith. We don't even know where we're going to be in uh, a few months, necessarily. He knows what he's going to do in this world. So you may not see that. You may not understand that. But he does. And we can trust him. And we can walk by faith in him as we face impossible situations. Well, that leads to the next truth about Jesus that we observe in this story that we need to remember as we're seeking to follow him, which is that Jesus provides more abundantly than we can imagine. Jesus provides more abundantly than we can imagine. So the story continues, and starting in verse 10, Jesus once again displays his supernatural power along with his extreme love and compassion and extreme, extreme generosity. So listen to verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Well, here we observe Jesus doing yet another work that his father had planned for him to do. We've been talking about that over the last couple of weeks. And so he prays to his father. He gives thanks to his father. And then he distributes the food. And we can't miss this just because it's a very famous story. We all know about the feeding of the 5,000. But friends, this was an incredible miracle. We've talked about how this was just a little meal. Jesus fed everybody. And this wasn't some meager meal as if like they just got a little bit. They ate until they were full. And there was even a ton left over. 
A couple weeks ago, I was invited. I had this great opportunity. Someone got some amazing tickets to a baseball game. And these tickets included all-you-can-eat food, which, you know, if you've ever been to a baseball game, normally like a hot dog is like five fifty just to, you know, eat one of those. And so at the end of that game, in the, in the all-you-can-eat food, I tell you what, I was satisfied, <laughs> definitely satisfied, um, if not very full. And that's what was happening here. The people, they ate all that they wanted. They were full and they were satisfied. But the Lord had even provided more than they needed. Listen to verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. This part of the story is a little bit curious. You're kind of thinking if you've read this, you probably skipped past it a bit. Like why these unnecessary details, John? Why are you telling us? But every gospel writer says there was 12 basketfuls of bread left over. It's not completely clear what John is doing, but I believe part of it relates to the larger unit of what's going on in chapter six. Because in this story of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is not merely interested in us knowing that he can feed a lot of people and that he can do miracles. He surely does want us to know that. It does show that he is the son of God, that he is God himself. But he's doing something much greater. Like most of the signs, he's pointing to deeper realities. He's doing that here as well. And Jared's going to talk about most of this next week. So I don't want to steal his thunder in chapter 6. But ultimately, he is pointing people through this miracle to the fact that he is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. And if you feed on his flesh, that is, believe in his name you will have eternal life. And he'll give you abundant life. Later on in chapter six, Jesus says that he will not lose any that the Father has given him. So what is he doing here in this, these verses? He's saying just like none of the 12 baskets of leftover bread is lost here. Jesus is not going to lose any that has been given to him. Just like none of these 12 baskets are lost here. He is abundantly providing, and he himself is the abundant provider. He is the bread of life. Well, the people who ate the food also perceive that something greater is going on here. This is not normal. Listen to verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. You remember when the miracle happened, right? It was Passover. Uh, Scholar D.A. Carson helps us to see that the Passover was much like 4th of July is uh, for us today. And I see some red, white, and blue. Some people pointed that out to me today. You're wearing some red, white, and blue because of 4th of July. Well, what's 4th of July for Americans, similar for the Israelites, for the Jews. It was a time to remember how God had delivered them, how they had freedom, how God had performed miracles through this, this is where the analogy breaks down, so we didn't have a prophet, but where a prophet like Moses had delivered them. And so 
in their minds was this moment. This was, uh, people would celebrate this time. And so it's very natural that as they saw the feeding of the 5,000, that they would think, you know, just as Moses provided in the desert and provided, God provided through Moses, so also this one, he's a greater prophet. He's a greater prophet than even Moses. He's the one that Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 18. That's what they're saying here. And I don't need you to turn there, but I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 18 just to help you hear what they were thinking. Starting in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18. Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then a couple verses later, God says this. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The thing is, the crowd was right. Jesus was the prophet who was to come. But they were wrong because they misunderstood who this prophet was supposed to be. They thought this prophet was somehow going to take control and have some political power. But Jesus was not going to bow down to the crowd's wishes. Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Friends, from this story, we want to learn and be reminded that Jesus is a king. He is the king of kings, but he's not going to bow to our wishes of what we think that should look like. He will abundantly provide for us. We're seeing that in the text, but it's not always in the way that we think. Because oftentimes what we want is God to provide abundantly, just like he did in this story, with more food or more money or more stuff. That's what we want as for his provision. But Jesus' kingdom is different. His values are different. He gives us the greatest provision that we could ever ask for. He gives us himself. And so if we believe in him, he will give us abundant life. Not an easy life. Not always a life with all that we want here on earth or we would have asked for. But an abundant life full of the spirit and the joy of knowing him. And a question that I would ask us this morning is, are you experiencing that abundant life? Maybe you've never experienced that kind of abundant life, and today is a day that you are going to trust in Jesus. You're going to see that he has died for you. He's overcome all obstacles of death and sin and the wrath of God so that you might have life. You can trust in him today. Put your faith in him today. But many of us have put our faith in Jesus, and yet we're still not experiencing this kind of abundant life. Perhaps for some of us, we're thinking we can find abundant life in a better job or better house or more money or health of our family. But the only place that we're going to find the abundant life that Jesus offers is through Jesus himself coming to him in faith daily. 
walking with him. Well, the feeding of the 5,000 shows us that Jesus will provide abundantly for us. And he can overcome all obstacles. But in so doing, he does it in his way and according to his timing. Well, now as we transition to the second story in the narrative, we can observe another truth about Jesus, which is that his presence calms our fear. His presence calms our fear. Let's pick up the story in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm on water, but it's pretty scary. So a couple years ago, I was on a boat with my brother-in-law, and out of nowhere, this thunderstorm came upon this pretty large lake that we were on. I was thankful at that moment for a very large motor in the boat, especially as lightning was striking not too far behind us and we were trying to outrace the storm. I was, I was a bit scared, truth be told. Well, here in this story, the disciples aren't in a boat with a motor. <laughs> They're in a dingy boat. They've rowed three or four miles into the middle of the lake and a huge storm has come up. But as scary as that might have been, what they see makes them even more afraid. Look at verse 19. When they rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Here again, John gives us the benefit of kind of the narrator's perspective. He tells us that Jesus was walking on the sea. But likely, since it was dark and stormy, the disciples couldn't see who it was. All they could see is something or someone coming towards them. In Matthew's account and in Mark's account, they say they thought it was a ghost. And so they, <laughs> of course, they're terrified. There's a figure walking on the water towards them. But then the figure speaks, verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. If you're paying attention, Jesus has said this same thing before when he was talking with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Here he calls out the disciples and he says literally in the original language, I am. Do not be afraid. Now it's not clear if the disciples saw the significance of this statement for Jesus. If they saw that Jesus was saying, I am. In other words, the name for God, Yahweh, God himself. Or if they just thought Jesus was saying, hey guys, it's me. On one level, it doesn't really matter what the disciples thought because both are true. Jesus is God and he has control over the wind and the seas and the storms. And the point is when Jesus is near, you have nothing to fear. Didn't mean to rhyme that, but it, it does rhyme. When Jesus is near, you have nothing to fear. And so even if you're in the midst of a storm at sea, Jesus can give you the, the peace to overcome your fear. Even when you're going through the greatest trial or difficulty of your life, the presence of Jesus calms our fear. 
And I don't know what everyone in this room is going through today. I know what some of you are going through, but Jesus knows fully. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows your fears. He knows your anxieties. And if you're full of fear of anxiety today, hear those words of Jesus for you. It is I, or I am. Do not be afraid. Well, verse 21 then says, they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Again, the point is, is that when Jesus is near, there is nothing to fear. Sure, there can be extreme hardships that he brings into our life. I know some of those hardships with those within our congregation. They are major hardships. They're difficulties. There can be disease. There can be despair. There can be discouragement. There can even be facing death of yourself or someone else. These are major hardships in life. But we know that whatever you are going through, Jesus wants to meet you in the midst of that and and be there, your presence, and, and calm your fears. No matter what difficulty you're facing, you're not facing the difficulties alone. Friends, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us that in Romans 8. He says, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The point, once again, is that the presence of Jesus calms our fears. We need to be reminded of that regularly because we forget. We forget that Jesus, when he's near, we don't have to fear He's got this. He's got your life. He's got the world in his hands. We can trust him. Remember again what Paul says in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you know and love Jesus, God is for you today. He knows what he's going to do. He can be trusted. Well, when put together, these two stories show us that Jesus is Lord, and that no obstacle is too hard for him to overcome as he brings abundant provision to us. He's the bread of life. He's the exact representation of God the Father, who in Job chapter 9, verse 8, it's said of him, he tramples over the sea. Nothing is impossible for Jesus. So remember that as we follow Jesus this week, today, this week, the coming weeks, He will test our faith, but in the midst, he will provide abundantly for us, and his presence will calm our fears. Knowing these things, will you step forward in faith today, this week, for what he's calling you to do, what he's calling you to say, as he's calling you to go through the trials that you're going through today? Will you trust him in faith? Hear his words to you today. It is I. Do not be afraid. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so grateful of these promises in your word as we see Jesus acting, as we see his miracles, as we see him testing the faith of Philip and coming to the disciples when they're in the time of need.
Lord, we're encouraged because it shows us your character, shows us who you are and what you will do, not just for them, but for us. And so, Lord, help us to live lives of faith today and this week. Help us to trust you. Lord, there are some today, I'm sure, who are questioning who you are because of the trials they're going through. They're angry at you because of what their life has turned out to be. So, Lord, please redirect our focus. Help us to understand rightly who you are so that we might worship you and walk by faith as we rely on your strength. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.